this is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 78. I want to take a moment right now to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. So for this week's episode 78, I wanted to have Jeff Harmon from the Master Photography and Photo Taco Podcast come back on the show. Uh, If you remember, in episode 57, he joined me for a talk about sports photography, which is one of the things he specializes in. But I wanted to have him back on the show to also talk about his portrait work. He does a lot of senior portraits and family portraits in his home area out in Utah. And I wanted to have him come back on the show and talk about that. So that is what we're going to be going to right now. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to get to this conversation with Jeff Harmon on portrait photography. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing, buddy? Doing pretty well. Awesome. It's great to have you back on the show, and I tell you, man, your sports photography episode 57 is still popular. I still have a lot of people downloading and listening to that episode. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I knew you'd be popular. you got a great voice for podcasting. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure everyone agrees with that, but I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, it kills me because you all the time on, on the Master Photography Podcast, you'll talk, you'll you'll do your intro and you'll be like, yeah, it's just me by myself. I apologize to everybody. I was like, what are you talking about, dude? You got a great voice for podcasting. Well, good. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yours, yours sounds better than mine. Trust me. <laughs> well, to each their own, I think. <laughs> All right, so this week, as I mentioned to my listeners during the intro, Jeff and I are going to be talking about portrait photography. This is something that Jeff does quite a bit of, and and again, as we talked about on the previous episode, and if you've listened to the episodes of, of his two shows, Master Photography and Photo Taco Podcast, he considers himself a hobbyist because he does not do photography for a full-time living. He works in IT, but he has been getting really busy lately with the portraits. So, uh, Jeff, if you want to go ahead and start there and tell us a little bit about how things have been going with the uptick in work lately, and uh, then we'll get into some uh, specific questions about how you, how you approach your portrait photography. All right, yes, yeah, that sounds good. So, uh, I've, I've been doing portrait photography work for about four years now. Uh, paid clients, so I guess if if some people's definition of a professional photographer is you have paid clients, then I guess I'm a professional photographer, though it just doesn't seem like that's a fair thing to say. Since, <laughs> like you said, I have a full-time job doing uh, IT work um, that uh, keeps me extremely busy. But uh, I picked up a camera a while back. I've been learning about how to use it all, a, a lot. And, uh, you know, I, it, I, I've kind of taken people along with me on my journey as I have done that. And that's kind of the whole premise of the Master Photography Podcast, too. It's the whole concept of we're all on our journeys to master the art of photography. And some of us are further along that path than others. Um, my portrait work then, um, you know, I, I started out, <laughs> I started out with like just, 
family member, like most people do, family members, friends saying, hey, it looks like you know your way around a camera. Would you mind, Would are you open to like taking our family photo or something like that? Or my child, I'd like to have some photos taken of my, of my kids. And um, so at first it was like totally free because I was like, I'm, I don't do this good enough to really charge anybody for this. And, and I wanted to try it out. Um, and then because people began to get more interested in it, I started to charge and then I started I had to increase the prices over time. But I started out as one that um, <laughs> I definitely counted myself among those that say, well, I'm a natural light photographer. Um, but it was for the wrong reasons. And I, I tried to point this out or, or make it something that, that I recommend to a lot of people is totally fine if you want to be a natural light photographer. You can make natural light look incredibly beautiful and have it be uh, a very moody, uh, it, it can look stunning. But don't default to it. Like, don't say I'm a natural light photographer because you don't know how to do flash. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I was. I was someone that didn't, I was afraid of flash. I didn't want to make the investment. First off, I, I try to keep my investment in my photography gear down as low as I possibly can. It's my hobby, not my full-time job. Um, and it, I didn't want to make the investment, but I also like the, the tiny bit I had tried it. I would, I bought like one flash and was trying to use it. My photos were made worse. Like <laughs> as I was starting it, I was like, this does not work well. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but this is horrible. And it, I do much better with natural light. So I, I did it saying, justifying to myself for a long time that I was a natural light photographer. Um, and then just Every interaction I had with real portrait photographers, people that did this professionally, they kept telling me like flash changes it. If you really learn how to use flash, then you can make your work so much better. And uh, so I decided I, I really have to figure this out. I got to see what it is that, that uh, this does and how to make it work. If for no other reason, I can talk about it on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I also wanted to to improve the quality of the images that I could produce for the clients that I had. Uh, so I, I started to, to really get into it. I, I evaluated a lot of light, different lighting gear, even changed directions at one point. But it's it's become something that is become is like everyone was telling me, it was a game changer. It was something that was really really nice and. It takes time. I think it's like any skill, though. You can't expect it to happen like overnight. You buy a flash and then all of a sudden your images are looking like someone who's been doing this professionally for years and knows how to use lights and, and reflectors. And Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not something you're just going to instantly intuitively know how to do. Right. So I, I, I spent the time. I dug in. I learned how to use it. And it's indispensable now. I'm absolutely not just a natural light photographer. I love trying to incorporate natural light into my portraits. Some of my favorites uh, are those where there's a beautiful sunset in the background or some something really nice in the background as far as natural light goes. But I still use artificial lights on the model and balance it. And boy, does that make an, a, a, an impact. And that's the thing, the kind of thing that differentiates the photography that I can do for my clients with portrait work from uh, someone that just has a nice camera or 
even harder today is people that can get really nice photos from their cell phones, from their smartphones. And, uh, you know, achieving the same kind of lighting, uh, you can sort of get there with phones too, but you have, still have to know how to use light. And um, and most people, you know, they, they don't do that. They just snap the photo with their phone. And the best camera you've got, or the best camera is the one you have with you. So, you know, not not knocking smartphones as a, a way to, to really capture uh memories that mean a lot to all of us those are great tools to be able to have with us and and really makes it so that we can share moments with each other especially given the times we live in right now to be able to keep up in touch with each other and, and those are great things but boy can you make you can distinguish yourself as a portrait photographer that can provide a product that is vastly superior to what can be done by uh you know someone with a nice camera or with their phone and uh, and make it so the clients like clamor for your services because they see the the results from what they have so that's that's what i've been able to build to and uh boy it's it's been giving me all the work i can handle over the last several months uh with the seniors that are graduating i think a lot of families a lot of parents in particular have felt like wow our, my kid that just graduated high school is they got cheated out of half of their height their senior year. And I really want to do something nice for them. I want to get really nice senior photos for them where they might not have done that in the past. They might have either just taken their own photos with their smartphones or uh, or something else. They, they, they might not have paid for it. And I think there's been a lot more who decided yep, exactly. that they wanted to spend the money on it this year. Yep. Yep. I can definitely see that. And, um, now, when you when you started doing this and working with like, because like you said, and I agree with you 100%, the very best portrait photographers I've seen that make a really good living at it, they use a combination of natural light and artificial light, and they know how to balance it very well, which you're you're getting fantastic at that. You and and the previous guest I had on, on portrait photography, John Harvell, who was one of my classmates at the Art Institute, had the same thing. He's gotten really, really good with his lights. And balancing the natural light with his mono lights or, or even speed lights, depending on what he's using. But now let me ask you, when you started out, because I, I don't know if you're familiar with Zach Arias or not. He's an Atlanta-based photographer. He's fairly famous. Um, he's been on quite a few YouTube channels. He's done um, photography presentations on Creative Live and stuff like that. Um, and then there's also David Hobbyist, who's actually known as the Strobus. That's his nickname. Right. And, and those two guys are really famous for their mastery of artificial light for doing portraits. That's their bread and butter. That's what they do. Zach shoots a lot of uh, uh, major, major record label bands like Foo Fighters and Red Hot Chili Peppers. He does a lot of that kind of work. And I remember watching... Uh, an episode of Digital Rev TV, which I, a show I was talking with you about before we started recording, uh, a few years back. This was back when Kai and, and Loke were still doing the show. Kai was the host and Loke was the cameraman. And he had Zach Arias on there. And what it was is it was their segment called Pro Photographer Cheap Camera Challenge. And they would get a pro like Zach Arias or even Chase Jarvis was on the show a couple of times. And they would give them an absolutely garbage camera and have them create with it to prove to everybody that it's not the gear, it's the skills of the person wielding the gear. And so they gave Zach a really, really cheesy, like $5 Chinese digital camera and, and like a $3 used Minolta speed light or something like that. 
and, and he was doing street portraits with artificial light and natural light combined with this crappy setup. And he was explaining as, as he was talking through his process, he said, there's so many people that want to get into doing portraits with artificial light, which is a great thing. But they'll go out and buy two, three, four, five lights and throw everything into a shoot. And it's like, you've got to start out small. You need to master one light. Right, Get right. good with one light, then expand to two if you need more light. You know, if you need a fill light and a key light or a pri you know, primary light, a fill light for the hair, hair light, or whatever the case may be. But he and, and I, I've heard David Hobby say the same thing. you got to start with one light, master that, then expand to two, then expand to three if you're doing the kind of family portraits where you got larger groups and you need three or four lights, that's fine. But work your way up because they, they have both said, I've seen so many photographers trying to master their light and they'll start out with four lights and they have no clue what they're doing and it just makes everything a disaster. So did you start out that way? Did you work your way up from one light to two and then three? Because I know you're up to like three or four now, correct? It, and it totally depends on the shoot. So if, if it's a single person, I still use just one light usually. So that's... And, and balancing it with the ambient light. So it's not in a studio setting. I might do a second light, like you said, the hair light or fill light, uh, just to make sure that we don't transition off into complete shadow on their face. But I, I like having capturing the contrast of bright to shadow on the face. It really makes it so that you can see the person. And it looks completely flat if everything is like very evenly lit. You lose a lot of depth and, and a lot of the the things that are good about a, a portrait. Yeah, exactly, because it makes it look more like a drawing than it does a photograph. Yeah, it becomes w way more two-dimensional yep. when everything is completely evenly lit. So that's never, my objective is not fully even lighting. I just don't want completely dark uh, shadows on the face. I'd like to lighten those up just a, a little bit at least. So it, it depends entirely on like how many people I'm shooting, where I'm shooting, uh, do we have good ambient light uh like you know is it or is it like middle of the day <laughs> it all there's a lot of variables there but your question about did i start out with just one i did and uh more not because i was it was an educated choice uh it was because of the cost frankly it was i i wanted to try it i wasn't convinced like i said i, I had justified in my head i'm a natural light photographer just be but it was more because i didn't know how to do artificial light than it was a, a deliberate decision so you got you got your first one and figured you'd dip your toes in the water without it costing you a fortune <laughs> Exactly. And like in and, and that way, if it ends up being something that I'm not really happy with and I don't like, then I didn't make a massive investment in a bunch of lighting equipment in order to get this going. So and, and I went with, you know, I, I started out with the young Newell brand. We've talked about that just before the show, too, as we were getting set up here. Um, and which meant that that was also a way to really decrease the expense on what I was going to do. I, if I remember right, it was you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 bucks, something like that, just to, to get the light, the one flash. And that was not bad for a hobbyist that just wanted to check it out and see what does this mean? How does it change things? Um, and then I started off with that and it was horrendous. <laughs> when I first started going, <laughs> I made it much worse. I had no idea how to control the, the power of the lights, like how to try to balance that with ambient uh, and how like the camera settings affected the ambient versus the artificial light. And there was just a lot to learn about how to get it all to come together 
And so it made for really terrible images as I was first starting. And then just getting more information, finding the questions to ask, and then find, and, and getting good answers from people that know what they're doing uh, helped me along the way. So that to the point now where I, I feel like I'm, I could be able to, to help somebody that is wanting to get into lighting uh, really well, and because I, I can remember very well the, the process I had to go through to get there. Yeah, exactly. And and I've heard you talk about it on your shows and I've seen your work myself and you've gotten incredibly great with working with artificial light and combining it with, with the ambient light when you're doing outdoor shoots, especially. I mean, your, your work has been amazing. And again, not to get in an argument because we're friends about whether or not you're a hobbyist or a pro, but I've actually asked quite a few of my pro fans have shot for 30 plus years. And they all told me the same thing. If you're getting paid to take the photos, you're still a pro, whether it's your full-time job or not. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair so enough. you are a pro. Even if you don't want to call yourself that, you are a pro. <laughs> all right. Okay. So now let's get into the, uh, the, let's talk about modifiers because my listeners, we got into it a little bit with John Harvell when he was on the show talking about portrait photography, but I know you're using some very, you're using completely different modifiers than like a, just a regular softbox. You've got a lot of the MagMod gear. So let's talk about that a bit and how you use that to shape and control your light during a portrait shoot. So the, the objective is to get the light and it's, this is so counterintuitive. This is probably what took me the longest to figure out and learn, even though people had said it, it's like I didn't believe them when they said it until I went through it myself. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just someone who has to learn by painful experience instead of learning from others. So hopefully people listening can like try to learn from others instead of having to have painful experience. But the objective is to make the light source as big as possible and get it as close as possible to your model. And that sounds totally counterintuitive. It sounds like, no, that's going to make this like horrible shininess or bright spots on the, on the model and going to be a problem. And the opposite is true. If the light source is smaller and further away, that's when you bring in really harsh uh, transitions between bright to shadow on the face and on the model and doesn't look professional at all. It, that looks like an amateur trying to use light to, to light a scene. Um, so, it, and the counterintuitive nature of it is, is maybe what contributes to it. So that's always the biggest challenge is how can I get the, the light? And we're talking about flashes uh, primarily. We're going to talk about that versus like strobes. Strobes would be a little bit different. But when you have the flash, you can think of your traditional flash. Those light sources are really tiny. They're very, very small compared to your model. And so even if you bring it right up next to them so that it's barely out of view, through the camera, um, because that light source is so little, it doesn't really create pleasing results. It looks it looks pretty harsh. You can have really hot, bright hot spots, and the transition from bright to dark is very, uh, very quick. And we want a very smooth transition between the lightest to the darkest portion on the model. So you need a modifier in order to make that happen. And so modifiers can be, there's all kinds of them. There's, you know, an entire industry built around lighting modifiers, tons of vendors. 
And uh, any of them are probably going to do really, really well for you. So, uh, but you asked about Magmod in particular. Um, the, the thing that I like best about the Magmod stuff is the ease of use with it. There's, they're, I, they're not the best modifiers that are available for sure. There's things that can do a better job of making that light source larger than the Magmod gear. For example, there's the Magmod Magsphere is the name of the product that is this little tiny dome thing that you put on the front of the flash. It's only about, I don't know, maybe six inches in diameter kind of spherical thing. So it's not significantly enlarging the, the size physically of the flash, but because it's a sphere, it really kind of spreads the light out it, really well for its size. Exactly. And I use that for my real estate work because I... With the way we shoot our company, the company I'm contracted with wants us to shoot, we keep our speed light pointed straight up so that the light bounces off the ceiling. Right. And we use just a omnidirectional uh, uh, modifier. So I decided to go with the Magmod Sphere, and I love it. It does a great job of spreading out the light in an open room, you know, even in a large open room in a house. And generally everything I shoot is empty. You know, they're empty properties, so I don't have to worry about dealing with furniture Although sometimes I do run into houses that have like weird brown paint on the walls and it seems like no matter how high you turn up your speed light, the paint just sucks all the light completely out of the room and they end up dark anyways. Right. And, and in that case, because you're, you're essentially turning the ceiling of the room into a big giant reflector, and that's now becoming kind of the source of the light. So that the combination of the two, you're, you're making sure you spread that flash out over across the ceiling, and then the ceiling becomes a good reflector. That's making that light source really, really big, and it makes very pleasing light on the room. Exactly. Uh, it's pointed directly at the model. Uh, so I mean, you can totally use that too. If you're in a room where you can bounce stuff off the ceiling, that can become your modifier where you don't even need something on the flash you can bounce it off the ceiling i've done some events where that worked extremely well i could put three flashes in a really large room and then just pointed them at the ceiling and as i went around the room and took, took as i snapped photos and could uh, control the the flashes from a controller on the camera uh produces really, really good lighting for that kind of a situation. But where it's more direct and you're trying to just light, light a model, the Magmod Magsphere is still a, a really good thing, but it's not because it's a, a massive modifier that's going to give you the softest light. It's because of the ease of use. It's these magnets that hold it onto the flash make it like so simple to be able to put it on and off. There's no setup time. You don't have to worry about rods in a, <laughs> inside of a, supports that, are, that you have to stretch out in order to get a, a, like a softbox set up. And it has really nice uh, ways to be able to gel the flash too. So you can put coloring, add some coloring, and that, that really opens up some creative effects that you can do in a way that is simple enough, like you're willing to do it in a shoot. With some other, with a lot of other modifiers, it is challenging enough to like change something to put a gel on that you're like, oh, I just, I don't want to spend the time <laughs> to do this with the client sitting here in front of me. And whereas I feel totally comfortable saying, all right, we've got the safe shots. We've got the shots I'm sure you're going to be happy with. You want? Do you want to do some experiments? Would you like to have a little fun with this now? And they always are game for that, as long as it doesn't take hours to do it. And so I can very quickly put in a gel and start taking pictures. And man, do they get into it because it only took a few seconds to get that gel into the flash. 
And as I show them the back of the camera to show them like what we're getting now that we're, we're playing around with color in the light, they get all kinds of ideas and they want to try different poses and, and they get into it. And, uh, and then they end up really loving those images. And, and I'm building that relationship with that client as uh, they, they know that I'm someone that's going to be able to, to get very unique kinds of photos out of the shoot because I do different things with different colors of light and, and positions and, and things like that. Exactly. And then you're falling back to the old adage that it's always best, especially in photography, to under-promise and over-deliver. That's right. So when you can give them a variety of really creative shots using gels and things like that, I mean, that just makes the whole experience that much better for them. It builds up your, your reputation as a photographer for really knowing what you're doing and being able to give people really creative, unique looks with a variety of different lighting styles. And... That's one of the things I like about Mad Mod. I don't have as much of their stuff yet as you do. I don't have their softbox yet. I've been going back and forth on whether or not I'm going to drop 300 from one of them. Um, but I have the Sphere. I've got a couple of the... I bought a couple of their smaller kits. So I've got two, either two or three of the, the big rubber things that go over your speed light that have the magnets inside them. You know, the, the, the base part. And I've got the Sphere. Yeah, I've got the Sphere. And I've got the... Uh, what's the... What's the other one called? The small one that's got the opening in the one side. It's like a, oh, the mag bounce. That's what it is. Yeah, I've got yeah. the mag bounce. And I think I do have a set of their gels because I think one of the kits I got, uh -huh. you got a set of the gels with it. And all that stuff is fantastic. And I've seen so many portrait photographers that do like to offer their clients, you know, creative lighting with gels and stuff like that. But... And it, a lot of them, it was before the MagMod stuff came out, so maybe some of them got on board with it. But a lot of them, in the earlier years of digital photography, especially with Photoshop, and especially with Photoshop, they would just do their standard portraits. And then later in post-processing, they would play around with adding gel effects in Photoshop mm -hmm. to see how, like, because they didn't want to take the time to screw around with gels while they had a paid client, you know, sitting there posing for... For portraits, and I can understand that because it can be extremely time-consuming. Then you've got a client that's getting frustrated and aggravated, and then you know that can make the whole thing go south on you real quick. Right. So we got into the uh, a little bit of the Magmod stuff, but the one, and this is one I really wanted you to talk about with me because, like I said, I'm on the fence about getting it. I, I'm not as knowledgeable on it as you are. So let's move on and talk about your. Your favorite modifier, I believe. I could be wrong, but I think you've said before that it's your favorite one, which is the Magbox. Uh huh. And so, yeah, there's there's some things to understand about it for sure. So uh, we talked about the the Mag Sphere is a good way to enlarge that light source of the flash. Um, they do ha offer a softbox now. Uh, it's it's a fairly new product offering, uh, only within the last I don't know about eighteen months or so that they've even offered it. And so it's a 24-inch softbox, which, as softboxes go, is not all that large. It's it's a fairly small softbox, but it's significantly bigger than that MagSphere. So you definitely can get softer light out of it. They focused really heavily, and, and MagMod prides themselves as a company. And I am not affiliated with the company in any way, by the way. So I don't get anything from you know pumping them up on at all. No, neither of us do. <laughs> yeah. So it's just I really, really like using their gear. Um, so they, they pride themselves on making the lighting modifiers easiest, the easiest they possibly can be to use. That's that's their, their goal. So when they approached a softbox, 
Uh, part of the reason I think it took them a while to release one was they were researching how can we take what has been a very traditional, like softboxes have been around for a very long time. How can we look at the current designs and improve upon it so that the softbox is easier to use? And, and one of the bigger challenges with most of the softboxes, and I have several other brands that some of them are really large, like 60-inch softboxes that I use in my stu home studio here. Though, and, and I'll prefer them to the, the MagMod because they're bigger. And I'm in my studio. I can have them on weighted light stands. They're right there to be able to use. So the bigger I can get that light, then I'm going to do that. I, I, it pr produces softer and better lighting results if you can get that light source to be bigger. Exactly. So this is this is something that is for working out in ambient light, not in a studio. It's, it's kind of the intention. And the, the bigger, the biggest challenge I've had with other softboxes is the setup and takedown. So to transport it, you usually want to compact it down as much as you can. And most of them do compact down, but they usually have a fairly complicated or fairly difficult kind of setup where you have metal rods that you have to get into like a, a ring and use tension to make it so that the softbox kind of forms and will hold its shape via these tension rods. And they're not easy to, to, to set up and take down. So it, you can you can plan for that on a shoot. You can plan be like, well, I know I need to be there early so I can set my stuff up before my client arrives wherever we've agreed to meet outdoors to go and do the shoot and and have that happen. And same thing, you're going to plan on like I know when I'm putting my stuff away, I have to. Have I'm going to be spending some time putting it away. So you can you can account for that. It can be not a big deal. But MagMod focused on this, and they've come up with a way to make it so that the the ring inside, the, the setup and takedown of the softbox is very, very simple. And adding a gel to the softbox is really simple. And most softboxes don't even support something like that. You have to gel the flash and then put the softbox over the top of it, whereas the MagMod... Uh, softbox allows you to put a gel inside of the softbox and change it in and out really, really easily. It's uh, it also has the the diffuser panel that goes kind of over the top of the softbox um, is magnetic instead of being Velcro, which makes it a, a faster way to do it. There's it's not without criticism. I'm sure if you'll go look on uh, reviews of the softbox, there'll be criticism um, where people will compare it to other kinds of softboxes, and they'll they'll say, "Magmod, you missed the mark. It's not as fast to set up as you know this very specific softbox they have, where they've kind of figured out how to make it so that they don't have to fully take out all the tension rods or something to make it so it's really fast for them to set it up and, and use it. And it's been in a workflow for a long time. So there there are people who criticize it and said, you, you know, it, it doesn't solve the design problem the way that they had hoped. They, they hoped it would be even faster and better than, than what they had before, and it wasn't. I don't fall in that camp. Every, every other softbox that I've used, um, and I've got some from Photodiox and from, from uh, Godox, they're time-consuming and difficult to set up. So for me, it works out really well, but it's also extremely portable. The, it, another advantage is it's built from the beginning to be able to support putting two flashes inside of a single softbox, which is really nice because often I'm meeting clients outdoors and we want enough shooting time with light that we'll meet when it's still it's still very bright outside. We'll meet like an hour before dusk and start shooting at that hour before dusk 
means there's enough ambient light to overcome. A single flash doesn't really overpower the ambient light very well, or it doesn't equal the ambient light very well. So it's it's a challenge, and, and you can buy Th uh, things to add to the softbox or the stand or whatever for other softboxes to make it so you can get two flashes in them. But the Magmod Magbox is made from the beginning to support putting two flashes in there and it's a magnetic mount. So getting the flashes, if you need to take it out of the softbox and, and use it somewhere else, it's so simple to be able to do that and make it uh, get the flashes in and out of the softbox. So I, I love it for being able to be outdoors. I have a bigger light now than the MagSphere provides, uh, but it's still pretty easy to transport and really easy to use. And it, it's just given me uh, a little, a, a better quality of light while I am out shooting outdoors with my clients and not in the studio. In the studio, I'll opt for another, another thing. But if I'm outside, I prefer the, the softbox, the MagMod MagBox to other softboxes because of the, the way that it works. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And uh, the thing that intrigues me is you were talking about the, and I heard you talk about this on, the, uh, I think it was the Master Photography Podcast, the fact that you can use two lights inside the one softbox. So is it is the, the unit set up so both the speed lights attach to it magnetically on the backside and then you can just easily slide one out or That's off right. that when you don't need it and use a single one? It's both magnets and it has a little bit of a clamp just to make sure they don't fall off. And I'm using really heavy lights. I'm using the Godox AD200 lights, which are really big, big flashes. So um, two of them, they're fairly heavy. They have these big lithium ion batteries that are part of them. Uh, it can handle that without a problem to be able to clamp those in with between the magnets and the, the nice little clamp. It's just like a, it just slides over the top. It's not hard to undo or, or take in and out, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just magnets there. And it's, I have the flashes mounted on the softbox within less than a second compared to uh, some others where it's, it's a little more challenging to get everything mounted uh, when you're putting the, the flash onto the light stand and then the light stand onto or the, the softbox onto the, the mount. Yeah, now see, that's the, that was one of the things I was wondering when you were talking about your 8200s because I've seen the pictures of them on Amazon, but, you know, that doesn't really give you an idea of how big they are. And I was thinking to myself, well, if you're getting two in there, are these like mono lights that are really, really small and compact, similar to a speed light, but maybe, you know, twice the length or something like that. But from the sounds of it, they're actually a, a fairly hefty sized mono light. They're heavy, but they're not much bigger than you'll think of with like. Okay, so I'm right. They because looking at the images, they look like they're basically a speed light, but maybe two or three times longer. I don't know that they're even two or three times longer. They're, they might be slightly longer, but not much longer than. Oh really? Oh wow! But they but they're heavy because of the big battery they're packs heavy. they got yeah. in them. <laughs> The battery makes them extremely heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know where you're coming from when you talk about people, you know, that are talking smack about the mag box because, you know, they still don't consider it fast. I mean, ideally, I know what everybody wants because it's something I want. We all want a soft box that's quick and easy to deploy. Basically, we want a soft box that can snap open and shut as fast as an umbrella. Right. right. <laughs> and we don't have, and we don't have to fight with those stupid metal ribs and everything else to try to get it to, into its shape and to get it to hold it to, hold its shape. Uh, now, how did they uh, on the interior uh, the interior components of the mag box? Because I want to stay on this for just a minute because I've had other listeners to my show asking about the mag mod stuff, and I've told them about the pieces that I have that I'm familiar with. 
So that was the other reason why I wanted you to talk about that on this episode, because I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, what do you know about the Magbox? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you anything about it because I've never bought it or tried it, but I'm having a guy on my show that's worked with it a lot. So that was the other reason why I wanted to have you talk about it in this, in your portrait photography episode, because I know you've mentioned that some people have inadvertently broken theirs. Um, so maybe you can go into a little bit more of the details as far as, because I don't believe they make theirs with basically like metal spines inside it, like a lot of soft boxes are, correct? Right. I, I don't know what the material is inside. It's not shiny, so it doesn't seem like it's metal. It's probably a hard plastic that is there. And it is an umbrella fold, unfold kind of mechanism. So the, the thing that we, that you just mentioned is is how they designed it. Oh, okay. Uh, so that you, you like, there's a, a loop on the inside and that, that uh, a circle. And when you pull the circle out away from the softbox, it collapses, you know, like the umbrellas do. And when you push the circle towards the back of the softbox, it expands everything, all the spines that are there and locks into place and, uh, and like an umbrella becomes rigid. So that is the mechanism that's there. Um, yeah, some, some have, people have said that they, and I, I don't know how it happened. I've been using it for a while now and I have no signs of any kind of, uh, problem with the, the spines breaking, but yeah, they, there've been some people have reported they broke their spine and that that was a problem because there's not a way to fix it. Like these, I think the internals are like molded things and you can't just like buy a spine and replace it there. It's all like one unit with joints. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's useless when it breaks and, oh, and you know, just other one. Yeah, that would definitely not be good, especially not a $300 a piece for them. That, and that's the downside of all of the MagMod gear, in my opinion. It's super easy to use, very convenient. It makes it enables creativity. And so in, in my mind, it is worth the investment, but it is pricey. It yeah. is much more expensive than a lot of other modifiers. So my recommendation to beginners as they're getting into this is not to go after the MagMod branded gear. It is to go after some of the other kinds of modifiers that are much less expensive they may not last very long because some of the modifiers are going to wear out really fast or they won't stand up in the wind the the wind will just shred them um, but if if you want to like figure it out and see if this is something you're you want to utilize in your portrait work don't don't start off with the the expensive stuff right at the beginning dip your toes in with the least the less expensive stuff and learn how to use it and then if you decide you like it then it, it's worth taking a look at the magma gear for sure yeah, because the one thing that I was looking at um, just a couple of days ago on Amazon, I was looking at soft boxes just randomly, and there was one on there that was made by Godox, and mm -hmm. it was, yeah, I don't remember if it was considered an octobox or not, because it wasn't like a square-shaped soft box, like a lot of the old school ones that I've seen and I've actually got a few of. But this one was more like an octagon shape, but it, then it was also kind of like a cone. So it was like really, I think it was like 36 inches on the light diffusing end, but then it went really small on the other end so that it would slide onto a speed light or one of their 8200s or something like that. And that one was 86 bucks. Right. And, I, you know, I was like, well, that's not bad. I mean, to some people, 86 bucks for one salt box is probably still expensive. But, you know, I don't know the quality of the Godox ones because I've never tried theirs either. I've got a, I've got a bunch of them by Photodiox and... The, the only other thing I found that's close to as fast to deploy is the, the Magbox. 
are, uh, I've got three of the Paul C. Buff DigiB monolights. Um, they're LED version of their monolights, and their their lights are fantastic. They're not cheap, but they're not super expensive. I mean, when you get into like bronze color and, and and pro photo and stuff like that, then you're talking super expensive lighting gear. Um, but the thing that was unique about the Paul C. Buff DigiBs is they gave you a two in one modifier. Uh, well, they made it available. You had to buy them separately. But theirs is actually a combination of a beauty dish and a softbox all in one. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like about it is the way he designed the lights. They have a spring-loaded four-finger mechanism on the front of the mono light that's easy to open and close. And you just close it, you know, shrink the fingers down by closing them. And then the, the beauty dish slides over it. You release it. Locks in place, and then to make it a soft box, it's got a beautiful piece of semi-translucent white cloth that just slides right over the front of it, and bam, turns it into an instant soft box. Cool. And so I thought that was pretty cool. So I've got those, and then, and then I've got some photodiox. And it, it, like you, most of my photodiox soft boxes are much bigger ones. They're thirty-six or forty-eight or sixty inches mm-hmm. um, to use in the studio. But I've been wanting. I don't do as a lot of portrait work, to be honest. I'm not into portrait photography as much. I do it for family and friends mostly. I don't get paid to do it. I did years ago. Um, I don't know if I shared this story with you or not, but many, many moons ago, back in the 90s, when I first got out of the military, I was doing children's portraits for Kmart. And I'm talking back in the days where no retail store had the little portrait studio with a shutter monkey making 12 bucks an hour. I actually worked with six other guys, and we traveled the entire eastern seaboard from Maine to Florida, doing all the portraits for all the Kmart stores. And I really enjoyed that because I've always had an instant rapport with little kids, and it's probably because I do silly voices and stuff like that, and I can do little puppet shows on the fly. And and so I was very successful at that, and I love doing it, but I've never been as into doing adult portraits or, or older kids and stuff like that. I tend to enjoy it more when it was infants and toddlers, to be honest. I I just had a lot more fun doing that. Um, But I have been looking for something that would work good in the field, be quick and easy to deploy for when I do need to do portraits, because I'm going to be doing a bunch of them in August when my wife and I go back up to Pennsylvania uh, to visit family. I'm I'm doing the, uh, uh, I'm also an ordained minister, so I'm doing the, the vow renewal ceremony for my aunt and uncle for the 30th anniversary. And then they also want me to do portraits while I'm up there. So I've been looking for something that would be quick and easy to use in an outdoor environment because that's all the stuff I'm going to be doing while I'm up there, you know, balancing ambient light and flash. And I wanted something that would be a lot more convenient to take with me up there. And it sounds like the mad box might be the way I need to go. Yeah. I think you would probably uh, enjoy that a lot. it again isn't it's not big enough for more than like two people probably if it's any larger a group than that you're probably going to need bigger light sources that are on stands and and use that but uh for for especially single portraits it's it's a phenomenal light source yeah now the only thing i'm not sure is if i get i'll have to look at it some more um because i'm not sure if i would be able to use the mag box with my one of my DigiBs, or if I'd have to use like my speed lights or something instead. I mean, I've got conventional model lights still um, that are non-LED from Photodiox that take they have a you know the standard what is it called an S ring on the front of them for soft boxes. Uh-huh. 
-huh. I've still got three of those, um, but I just like my DigiBees better because they use a lot less power. They're more powerful as far as light output. And the fact that when I bought the DigiBees, I got the, um, it's not huge, but it's not super, it's not lightweight either, but Paul C. Buff actually offers a, like a shoulder bag that you can get for the DigiBees that you can take out in the field. You pre-charge it at home and it's got a good size battery in it. It can run three of those DigiBees for hours mm -hmm. without the modeling lights turned on, of course. Um, so uh, that's probably what I'm going to take when I go, although I may try it with my, I may take both my speed lights and my DGBs and try it either way. But that was the other question I had for you on the mag box. Can it fit on a standard S ring type connection or is it, or is it no. got to be that modified setup of theirs? Yep. It has to be theirs. Yep. It won't okay. work with the, the NABs. I'll have to check into that because I'm not sure because <laughs> I know those those I call them giant rubber bands basically that you put like over top of your speed light or whatever that they give you those things are a real they're really strong really thick and they're a real bear to even stretch over the end of a speed light right. especially when you first get them so I'm like man I don't know if I'd be able to stretch that over a mono light or not yeah. uh it won't work with those. Yeah, I, I didn't think it would because it's it's made more for, you know, it's more speed light shape. So, yep. Yeah. And that's uh, and that's the thing with your 8200s. They're more of a rectangular shape light. So they're more like a speed light as far as the shape. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you can't use the mag box with any kind of S ring type light. Uh -uh. Well, that's like, I'm really surprised they haven't come up with an S ring to mag mod adapter or something. Might be something they'll be thinking about down the road. Or maybe I need to bring up my own because I do have some S-ring adapters here. <laughs> maybe I forgot a way to put some magnets in it and make my own MagMod adapter on the fly. All right, so we'll get off the uh, the MagMod stuff now, even though it's great gear. And again, you know, everybody listening, Jeff and I are not, neither one of our shows are sponsored by Mag MagMod. We just love their gear because it is so quick and easy to deploy. It's not inexpensive, but it is quick and easy to deploy, and, and you can get really creative you can have a lot of creativity in a shoot and a lot of fun and really well your clients especially if you have the gels like jeff and i both do um so one of the other things i wanted to talk to you about as far as portrait photography is and i i've seen you do some of this you posted uh an image or two about this only actually i think the image i saw um was when you posted your episode and you were talking about the failure you had where you forgot to take some of your gear with you. And I could be wrong. It might have been from a different shoot. But you did some really nice, and I've had a lot of people ask about this. This is why I wanted to ask you about it because I've seen you do it. The backlighted portraits where you basically turn your subjects into nothing but a silhouette. Uh -huh. And how you go about approaching that. Because I've had people email me about it. And I haven't played around with it a whole lot, but I saw you'd been doing some experimenting with it, either accidentally or on purpose. And you're, the last couple of them I saw you post were really amazing. So I wanted you to talk about that, especially because I think the most recent one I saw, it was two people and you had a really beautiful sky in the background. It was like a sunset shot. Yeah. Okay. So let, let me give you the kind of the story about how that shot. Absolutely. Happened. Um, so we, we were out at this location. It was the same shoot where I'd forgotten the, the soft boxes that I wanted to use at the shoot. So we were going to be taking family portraits and this was a family of seven. I think it was. Oh, and wow. So, so it's a big group. 
Yeah, wow. which means I needed bigger lights. I needed light stands, and I knew all of that. So I planned to bring it all, and I then I left my softbox, my big softboxes at home, my photodiox <laughs> softboxes at home, and I had to rig up or make do. Uh, it, that's not the the important part of the story, though. What's the important part here is. Um, this location we were at doesn't often have really good sunsets. It, the, the location itself is extremely unique. It's uh, salt flats here in, in Utah, and where there's miles and miles and miles of completely flat ground covered in like three inches of salt. And um, not, not the kind of thing you see uh, almost anywhere else in the world. And, and, so, and not friendly for lighting either. <laughs> no, not, not terribly friendly. <laughs> kind of like shooting in snow. <laughs> really, yes, hundred uh, percent of the time, and so, but, um, it, and then there, there are some mountains that are kind of off in the distance too that add to the the uh, ambiance, the the environment. But they, the clouds, it's not frequent that the the clouds are going to be there to make it be a stunning sunset. And if they are there, and there's clouds, you may be really risking it being rainy. And the reason the salt beds are there is because the Great Salt Lake is right there. And water comes in very easily. So this area can get extremely moist, and you don't want to be on it when it's extremely moist. You'll just sink in, and it'll be muddy, and it's a mess when you, if when it gets all wet. So when it's dry, it's no problem, but that means you're not likely to see clouds, or if you are, you don't want to be there. So, so you don't usually end up having nice backgrounds. But this night, we, we lucked out. There were some clouds that kind of just formed near the mountains as the sun was setting. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous sunset. It kind of a rare thing at this specific location. And, uh, and still totally dry, not raining. And so we were shooting, we were getting the traditional family portraits, taking individuals and couples and, and getting a lot of the shots that we wanted. And I was making do because I didn't have my softboxes with me. Um, and then it, it just got to the point where like the sunset had, it had set so much that the, the sunset background was not very strong. And I couldn't even, I couldn't lower my light levels enough to make it so that I could balance things out. It was just, it was too dark. And you, it would just be no balance between the ambient and artificial light. So I thought, well, let's turn this now then. Instead of trying to light the models and, and balance the ambient light, let's see what we can do with some silhouettes. It's still a strong enough sun a sunlit background that I can totally I could I could go with faster shutter speeds or shutter speeds that would bring that out still and then just have them be shadows, have them be silhouettes. So um, I still wanted to use my lights though. What one of the challenges that you can have with doing silhouettes is you can have the silhouette happen on a portion of the model. We were having them full body shots here. Uh, and uh, wherever the brighter background is, you'll see the outline, the silhouette. But then at some point, it kind of meets the horizon. And from the horizon down, you really won't see anything. It's going to be black from the horizon down, just completely dark. And you lose all of the form of the silhouettes as it gets down. And I wanted to try to make it so that you could still see the shape of their full body as you could do it. Maybe even a little bit of 
ambient uh, with the salt flats that we're at, those the, the floor where we're at. So I, I decided to put the lights well behind the models and point just kind of cross points towards the camera, but um, behind the, the models. It was a good 15, 20 feet behind the models to do it. And then um, just took some pictures of that. And then that was providing the rim light kind of on the silhouette so that you could still see even where the below the horizon, you could still see their, their outlines. And it produced, yeah, really, really fun things. And again, this was another thing where I was like, hey, you guys want to try something? You know, <laughs> we'll see if it works, how it goes. And we didn't have very long. That sun was setting and it was probably literally 30, 30 seconds to a minute that I had to try to get the shot. So it, once they said, sure, let's try it. And they was running the lights out behind them to get it to work and, and then taking the photos. So super fun. It turned out, uh, you know, really great. It's kind of the vision I had for the that right in that moment and just you know the experience i've had with with using lights to to augment the photos led to uh, an idea we tried it and it worked out super super well it was really fun yeah that image turned out fantastic and i I was going to ask you now were they really happy with that one when they saw it oh for sure yeah Um, because i was going to say it was fantastic and not only did I know it was going to be great after processing it, it looked fabulous just right there on the back of the camera. And as I showed it to mom, who was the one mostly vested in the shoot, that's how it yep. almost always goes. <laughs> when I showed it to mom, she's like, oh, my, I'm going to print that on acrylic. And she had this vision of, like, where it was going to go in her house. And it was beautiful. It worked out great. That's totally awesome. And see, now, I've never played around with doing the backlit shots, the silhouette shots like that. But I know, especially once upon a time in the film days, a lot of portrait photographers, especially wedding photographers, that was a big part of their their wedding shoot. Um, my uh, chemistry uh, teacher in high school, Mr. Borgeson, he was a professional wedding and portrait photographer, as well as being a full-time teacher. Uh-huh. And he did uh, one of my, he did my best friend's wedding uh, years and years ago, just a year or two after we got out of high school and he and his first wife got married. And one of the shots he did was a backlit shot of the bride next to a stained glass window in the church. And then in the center of that, he put a shot of the groom that was full of color. So it kind of made it look like she was thinking of him. It was that effect. Okay. And uh, and I've seen a lot of other portrait and wedding photographers, especially back in the film day, that would use those kind of backlit shots just as a little little something extra that they would put in in a package for a client. Because if you're really really good at doing those, and you get your light balanced just right, and you've got a really good colorful background, those shots just always look amazing. Whether it's a whether it's a colorful sunset sky or sta- or colored stained glass in a church window, they just look really amazing. Yeah, it's it's a really fun effect and, and unique. You know, that's not there's not a lot of portrait photographers that are creating shots like that for their clients. Exactly, and and I think that's why uh, I knew two or three of them back home in my home area in Pennsylvania, different parts of the state that did on occasion did those. And they were like the only guys I knew that did it. And they, they generally did it mostly for weddings. They would do some sort of version of a backlight shot, whether it was, um, I know one of them, and I don't rem- I don't know have any idea how he did it, but he did one that was kind of like a backlit shot, only it was just of the bride and the groom's hands. 
mm-hmm. one hand laying on top of the other, and the only thing that was there besides the backlit black outlines of their hands, their rings stood out. Uh-huh. The gold of the rings stood out. Everything else was just like backlit shot of their overlapped hands, but I thought that was a really cool look as well. Yeah. Yep. So... Uh, we're going to get close to wrapping up here. We're right about an hour, which is fine. The last time we went quite a bit longer, and I don't have any problem <laughs> with that either. But I don't want to tie you up for too long. But one of the things I wanted you to talk about to kind of wrap up the episode is some of the challenges you've encountered, or maybe one of your biggest challenges you've encountered when you started doing the portrait work, aside from teaching yourself how to use the artificial light properly and balance it, maybe something else that you've run into that you could share with my listeners that might help them as they look to get into doing this, or if they want to expand their portrait uh, work to include artificial light and natural light balance together instead of just, you know, quote unquote, being a natural light portrait photographer. Well, I think the, the the other thing that really made the, the biggest improvement in the image quality of my portraits was the, the glass. So getting a good lens, a high-quality lens, was, was really critical in making that kind of progress, too. So, uh, you know, I, I started out with the kit lenses, like everyone does, and then figured out how, okay, that's not fast enough, and I need, to, I need more, uh, I need to, to narrow the depth of field, too, and they can't really do that. So then I went to like the 50 because they're inexpensive and they, they work out really well. That's a good place to learn as well as getting a, a good 50 F F one eight lens to use. Uh, and the, but when I went to, to finally getting a, a good 24 to 70, since I shoot crop, the 24 to 70 is the one I use the most, uh, where if you were full frame, then I would go with the 70 to 200 as the one I would use more of the time. So, but, uh, but that, the the lens quality made a massive massive difference in being able to to create really good portraits yeah absolutely and i mean when it comes to portrait work and i tell people this all the time and i know you advocate for it and and brent i believe does as well on master photography and latitude photography podcast the glass is the more most important thing i tell people all the time that ask me i'm like look if somebody tells you or you think somebody's a pro photographer and you're talking to them about how to improve your photos and they're telling you body, 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 they don't know what they're talking about. Because <laughs> 99 times out of 100, you're going to get much better images with higher quality glass than constantly running out and buying the latest bodies. Right. Yep. Yep. And uh, now... The, uh, and, and for those of you listening, again, you'll remember in previous episodes, I've said a couple of times, the 70 to 200 is hands down the most sold lens on the planet. It doesn't matter if it's made by Canon, Nikon, Sony, Sigma, Tamron, does not matter. And that's exactly why, because a lot of photographers use that focal range for portraits, because you've got your 85 millimeter, which is super popular for portraits. You got your 105, which is popular with the Sony and Nikon shooters for portraits. And you've also got your 135, um, which Canon shooters love to have as their second focal length for portraits. It's general, and some will say 50. So 50, you can't get 50 from a 70 to 200, but if you've got that and a 50 millimeter prime, then you've got the three big focal lengths for portraits covered. And you're good to go. And in the 70 to 200, you definitely want to get the 2.8, not the F4 model. Yeah. Now, the uh, the 24 to 70 you're shooting with, you're, I'm assuming you've got the 2.8. you using the Mark 1 or using the Mark 2? 
I'm using a Tamron. Oh, okay. So you got the Tamron. I, I've heard a lot of good things about theirs. How's uh, what's your opinion on it? The performance and everything. Yeah, it's stunning. It's really, really good. Now, is that one of their G2 lenses? It is, yep. I had a feeling maybe, especially when you said it was really good. I know they had some issues with some of their earlier generations of lenses. I know I had the first 70 to 200 by them that was a 2A, and it was okay. Um, but it had, I want to say, was it, and I could have my terms wrong. I can't remember if it's the focus breathing was the issue on that. But what it boiled down to is it was a 70-200 lens, but in reality, it only actually did like 70 to 180 or 175. It didn't actually give you 200 millimeters on the long end like it was supposed to. It was considerably shorter than that. And, uh, but I mean, it was still a good lens, and I used it for a few years before I sold it and, and got the, the Canon 70 to 200 Mark II edition 2.8 of their lens, which I've now since gotten, <laughs> gotten rid of that as well. Um, just because I don't use my telephoto lenses as much. So they've got the RF one out for my EOS R and RP, but that one's pretty pricey. So I'm going to wait a little while yet because I loved having the 70 to 200 as well as the 100 to 400 L, but I just didn't use them enough. I was like, man, that's a lot of money tied up in two lenses that I hardly ever use. So I recently got rid of both of them and I, um, also got rid of my EF 50 millimeter 1.2 L and I got the RF. And, oh my God, that's a huge difference, right? Uh, if if yeah. you have not seen a comparison of the EF versus the RF and the fifty one two, oh, it's mind blowing how much better the RF model is. Uh huh. I would expect. Yeah. And, well, and I think the big thing is, and I talked about this. I think it was last week. I did an episode where I talked. I did reviews on three of the lenses I bought in the last year, including the RF fifty. And I, I know some of it's the new technology in the RF. Um. But I think another reason why it's such a huge difference between the EF and the RF 50mm lens is Canon never did a Mark II of their 50mm EF mount. They came out with that lens in 2006, and it's been the same lens for 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. new coatings, no new glass elements, no new anything. It's just been, which is weird because you know as well as I do, Canon generally will release a new revision of a lens, especially their L lenses, they usually release a new revision every two or three years. Yeah. And it was just crazy that they went, they've gone 14 years and never released another version of the EF 50 millimeter L lens. Well, maybe they knew RF was where they were headed. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if they knew it that far ahead, but hey, maybe they might have, because I have a feeling they were actually, they and Nikon were both working on their mirrorless for a lot longer than oh, any of us had any idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's been awesome having you on the show again, Jeff. I wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule because I know between your, your full-time job and from the sounds of it, all the portrait jobs you've been doing lately, you're probably stretched pretty thin, plus having a family to take care of too. So getting your yeah. quali quality time in with the wife and the kids. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Do the best I can. Okay, so wrapping up this episode, where can my listeners find your work, sir? My website is uh, over at jsharmanphotos.com. The S is for my wife, Susie. So jsharmanphotos, and it's H-A-R-M-O-N. Uh, I do a couple of podcasts that we mentioned already. So Photo Taco, if you like kind of what I went through and some of the details here, uh, you're going to love Photo Taco. That's over at phototacopodcast.com, or you can find it in any of your podcatchers, whatever it is you use to listen to podcasts on your phone. Uh, same with Master Photography, not quite as technically oriented, 
we try to cover more tips and news there than, than the technical details, but that's masterphotographypodcast.com. Uh, I'm also going to be presenting at a retreat coming up in October, the Create Photography Retreat. You can see the details at createphotographyretreat.com. Uh, it's in October. It's going to be in South Carolina in the Blue Mountains in the fall. We're going to have lots of presenters there. I'm only one of many. And I'm going to have a crash course on flash photography as a pre-retreat workshop that you could, uh, we don't have it quite up yet over at Create Photography Retreat, but it's coming soon where you could go sign up for that if you're interested. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for joining me. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode 78 of the Land Photography Podcast. And uh, I will talk to you again online off the show, Jeff. Perfect. All right. Take care, buddy. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. That is a wrap of episode 78, Portrait Photography, with the awesomely talented Jeff Harmon from the Master Photography and Photo Taco podcast. Like I've said in previous episodes, I highly recommend you give his shows a listen if you're not already a listener. Hopefully a lot of my listeners are, because I do talk about their shows quite a bit uh, on the Master Photog Photography podcast network. You have the uh, Brent's Latitude Photography Show uh, podcast, and then there's also the Landscape one, which is really good. And they're just a good group of folks. Um, I, I listen to their shows religiously every time they drop a new episode. The wife and I listen to them in the car together uh, because those guys put together great episodes. And Jeff is an awesome guy, and I just wanted to thank him again for joining me yet for the second time this year to talk about a subject that he's very passionate about and he's very talented in his portrait work, whether it's for seniors or families. He's taken some amazing images. And uh, I will include all of his links in the show notes. You can check out his website as well as his Instagram and Facebook. All right. I want to thank all of my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. And also remind you to check out the Land Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, there will be a new contest coming up uh, a little bit later on this summer. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it in July or August yet, where I will be giving away. Uh, it's probably going to be a tripod, uh, or it could be a tripod-monopod combo, as, as a couple of people suggested in the Facebook group. So make sure you're listening each week and watching the Facebook group so that you'll find out when that contest starts. All right, I will see you all again in another seven days for episode 79.